Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Mathematics. Our guest today is Adam Kucharski, who has written a fascinating book entitled The Perfect Bet. As you might guess from the title, this book is a history of the mathematical and scientific approach to gambling, how successful it has been, and what its future might be. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Adam, you've written a very intriguing book about a subject that is part math and science, part human, and part maniacal obsession. What got you interested in this subject? I've got a mathematical background, so I've really always been interested in games and gambling and trying to understand where the optimal strategies are and, in many cases, where the loopholes are as well. And uh, when I started looking at the idea for a book uh, and delving into the history of maths and betting, I realized actually the two are incredibly interlinked. Actually, throughout history, many of the familiar mathematicians um, found their inspiration by looking at games and gambling. In turn, many of these ideas found their way into the gambling industry. So I thought it was a really just fascinating intersection of ideas and how that's developed over the years. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. I mean, just going back to probability theory, it arose throughout gambling. And one of the mathematicians that you bring up very early in your book is uh, Henri Poincaré. And what are Poincaré's three degrees of ignorance and how are they reflected in the problem of finding a winning system for roulette? Poincaré was very interested in the nature of predictability. And as he saw it, if we had an event that was considered random, it wasn't necessarily true randomness. It was more a measure of our ignorance. And he categorized these ignorance into three degrees. He said uh, the, the first degree was a problem where essentially we had all the information we needed. So, you know, maybe it's measuring the, the trajectory of a ball or something. And essentially it was just working out the physical laws or the, the, uh, the system that would give it that trajectory. So it was very much just a maths problem to solve. We had all the information uh, we needed. He said the second degree of, uh, of ignorance is one where in theory we know the physics of the problem, but we don't have enough initial information. So maybe it's a, a ball spinning around a roulette table. We don't have enough information about its initial velocity um, to actually calculate what it will do in future. That, that was his second degree. And then his third degree of, inf- uh, of ignorance was one where we don't know the physical laws or the physical laws are so complex that we can't actually unpick them. And in that case, the best we can do is just watch a lot of uh, times and try and work out you know, what the, the average behavior of the system is. Well, there's no question that uh, there's been a fascinating history of the investigation of mathematics in connection with roulette, because I certainly remember about 30 or 40 years ago, there was a book called The Unimonic Pie, which you refer to in your uh, book. And perhaps you could describe a few of the more interesting forays into the problem of finding a winning system for roulette. Sure. Um, So initially, people started, uh, I suppose, in Poincaré's third degree of ignorance. Um, Really, historically, in Victorian times, people weren't able to unpick the, the laws of physics that were driving the ball around the roulette tables. So what they did instead was just watch a lot of spins and try and look for whether it was genuinely churning out random results or whether in some cases the tables had worn down and particular numbers or particular segments were coming up more often. And there were a number of people who used that uh, technique, most notably in the 40s, a couple of students who, by looking at tables and collecting information, worked out where the biases were and then placed their bets accordingly. As you mentioned, though, um, subsequently people developed uh, slightly more more clever ways of doing this. One of the pioneers was uh, a man called Edward Thorpe, who 
um, has been quite big in terms of developing blackjack theory, but also was interested in roulette and how it could be predicted. And he was a physicist by training. He really thought of this more as a physics problem. He compared a roulette table to a planet orbiting a star. And he realized that actually you could get to Poincaré second degree of ignorance. If you could collect enough data about the ball moving round before the croupier stops the bets, then that should give you enough to be able to predict its subsequent trajectory and perhaps work out where it might land. And as you mentioned, the um, Udemans, that was their their strategy. They they developed these hidden computers, took them to casinos, and by collecting information as the ball went round the track, um, actually got enough data to be able to predict um, with a fair degree of accuracy where the ball was going to land. One of the things that struck me when I was reading your exposition of this that I didn't really get in the eudaimonic pie when I read it is that um, on the systems that are used to beating roulette, roulette has that, you know, the uh, embedding of these sort of raised diamonds, which uh, correct, which divert the ball into different paths. But if you look at what is called the Wheel of Fortune, which uh, I don't know whether these are in European casinos, but they certainly are in American casinos. They're like Wheel of Fortune on the TV show. It's just a vertical wheel with spokes and you spin it. It struck me that you'd be much more likely to be accurate on this because there's not the element of uh, chaoticness that there is with roulette. That's exactly right. As you mentioned with roulette, you have these um, this issue that once the ball comes off the track, it can be far more chaotic in terms of where it actually lands. You don't have this in Wheel of Fortune. And actually, Edward Thorpe, when he was developing his roulette machines, actually developed a machine to target Wheel of Fortune. Um, but the issue he had was much more of a practical one. That In a casino, the wheel didn't actually get much action. So somebody hanging around the Wheel of Fortune for, for a long period of time, placing quite large bets, attracted a lot more attention than someone hovering by a roulette table. So I think this was an interesting clash of, in theory, it was a better game to target, but in reality, actually, it was much harder. Yeah, I can see that because I've been to a lot of casinos. I was a blackjack counter when I was younger. And yes, Real, uh, Wheel of Fortune got out absolutely minimal action. Um, moving on to something else, what is regression analysis and how is it applied to horse racing? Regression analysis is a technique for understanding how variables are related. Um, and there's, there's the long history, and actually one of the pioneers of regression analysis um, was a statistician who, again, um, sort of found his way um, by looking at roulette. But much more recently, it's been applied to understand horse races. If you think of, a, of several horses um, on a track, what you really want to know is what factors about those horses contribute um, to their success. And there were um, a couple of researchers, uh, Ruth Bolton and, uh, and Randy Chapman, who essentially pioneered a way of measuring a horse's quality from lots of its information. So it might be, you know, how many races it's run in the past. It might be uh, the weight of the horse, all these factors that somehow you want to distill down into a prediction um, about how it's going to perform. And their approach to doing this um, turned out to be to be very powerful. Um, a number of uh, betters targeting Hong Kong in particular, because you had very good data on these horses, um, turned this regression approach into analysing uh, horses into what's essentially now a multi-billion pound industry. So it's a really powerful demonstration of how statistics um, can give you some really good insights into what might be happening. 
Well, I spend a little time looking at uh, paramutual betting myself because I'm a mathematician, too. I have many of the same interests and uh, fascinations that you do. And one of the things that really bothered me is that in the United States, anyway, paramut- the tracks take out an incredibly large percentage. They, uh, they take out 20% on average. And it just struck me, it just must be so difficult to beat a 20%, uh, 20% house advantage. And I'm wondering whether or not it's different in Hong Kong or in Europe. Um, in Hong Kong, actually, yes, yeah, it, it was about 18%. So it's a really big house take that you've got to overcome. Um, in the past, actually, people have noticed, noticed other biases in horse racing. So, for instance, people will generally overestimate the chances of a long shot, but this wasn't enough to actually overcome the house edge. So, really, it was only when people came with a much, much better scientific method that they had enough of an advantage to capitalize on it. Yeah, and I know one of the things about your book is that I think that anybody who reads it finds the interplay of mathematics with the actual experience of some of the gamblers absolutely fascinating. Um, when I was reading your book, I, I was thinking, because you mentioned some of the same people, um, uh, Poundstone's Fortune's Formula, which is another book which uh, delves into the mathematics of gambling, written about 10 years ago. And both of both your book and Poundstone's book were a delight to read. Oh, thank you. Um, now, how was the Monte Carlo method developed and how was it initially applied and how is it applied now? The Monte Carlo method uh, originated in uh, Los, Al- Los Alamos National Laboratory. So this was um, the focus for, for both the Nyatan bomb and subsequently the hydrogen bomb. And one of the mathematicians there, um, Stanislav uh, Ulam, um, was, was not a big fan of working through lots of calculations. He was you know, really not the sort of guy who wanted to do pages and pages of algebra and he was once playing a game of solitaire um, and was thinking about the probability of if you laid out um, the cards what was the chances that you'd actually be able to complete the game um, successfully and rather than going through all the probabilities and combinations that, that you'd need to calculate that he realized that it might make more sense just to lay out a few hands and see what happened and actually some of the problems they'd had in developing um, the hydrogen bomb and understanding uh, some of the, the neutron uh, reactions, this method was a potential solution for them. Rather than having to do all the mathematics of, of the combinations and probabilities, they could instead use simulations. So in other words, use computers to approximate what might happen in the long term. And this is what they called, because they needed a code name for it, um, the Monte Carlo method. So it's a way of using computational um, approaches and simulations um, to get around the issue of having a problem that's too difficult to solve mathematically. And uh, this was obviously very powerful at the time, but particularly for horse racing and, and sports betting teams, it's a very useful method because if you think for um, something like a horse race, if you have lots of horses racing, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty around each one and there's going to be a lot of factors involved. And this is something that really is a bit too difficult to tackle with pen and paper. But if you have a lot of computer power, then this is something you can actually just crunch through and exploit the kind of brute force of a computer um, rather than having to to tackle with some really difficult um, mathematical equations. 
Um, there's a lot of betting that goes on in the United States in something that's called fantasy sports. I'm not sure whether or not you're familiar with it. But I remember reading a caveat from somebody who said that even though fantasy sports are nominally, nominally fair for the wagerer, the difficulty is that what they're doing is they're playing against people who have large-scale computers and are simulating the games on a mathematical uh, on a mathematical basis. And so the fantasy, the uh, day-in-day-out fantasy sports better has very little chance. And basically what's happening is you've got lots of people running Monte Carlo methods on these things. I think fantasy sports are a really interesting development. Uh, obviously, that's picking up more attention. As you mentioned, you have this very small, presumably very skillful group um, taking a lot of the winnings. And I think that raises the debate of to what element is it skill? And you know, in sports betting, we see a similar thing of a very small group of people typically taking a lot of the winnings. So I think the parallels between the two are going to be an interesting discussion in uh, coming years. One of the things that you brought up in your book that was actually the focus of the Poundstone book, Fortune's Formula, was the Kelly criterion, which I found fascinating. What is it and how is it employed in betting? The Kelly criterion, as you mentioned, um, William Poundstone's sort of excellent history of it. Um, the criterion is a way of, if you have a bet that's in your favor, so say, you know, we're, we're going to do a coin toss and I'm going to pay you double money. So if, if you win, you get twice the bets that, that I've made. Um, clearly, that's in your favor. But how much money should you put down? Because essentially, you're still risking something. You've still got a 50-50 coin toss. And the Kelly criterion is uh, a mathematical formula that, that tells you how much of your bankroll to risk for a given advantage so that you can maximize how much you make, but also minimize the chances of going bankrupt in the long term. And one of the things I found actually that really stood out interviewing um, betters and, and successful gamblers for the book is how important bankroll management is for a lot of them. Uh, you know, they, they put a lot of effort into making their predictions, but um, they also put a huge amount of effort into making sure that the size of their wages is big enough to take advantage of the situation, but not so big that one or two you know, bad outcomes will bankrupt them. Yeah, you run into something known as gambler's ruin, which is a phenomenon which has been extensively investigated. Definitely. You get you get these situations where, um, and certainly a lot of the historical strategies have this problem where it's something that in theory is profitable, but you'll run out of money before you can make, make it a success. And that's a really important component of a strategy. It's no good having something that mathematically will make you money if in reality you simply don't have enough cash to make it work. Um, absolutely. You know, in thinking about regression analysis, um, I was wondering, because you talk about reg regression analysis in conjunction with horse racing, but I was wondering whether it had been applied to other sports, such as European football, where the house percentage seems to be significantly lower than uh, the house percentage for horse racing. Regression analysis uh, certainly has been applied to, to a number of other sports. Um, I think one of the challenges, though, um, particularly when you start moving into team sports, is whereas horse racing, you can, to some extent, view as several independent events. You've got horses individually racing against each other. But whereas when you have a team sport, um, you might want to actually incorporate more in information about what the actual players are doing and how the mood changes over the course of a game. So in many cases, people are developing these methods further and sometimes putting you know, a mathematical model of what they think a match looks like and then combining that with the statistics to try and identify which factors are important in shaping that result. 
Um, one of the things that you analyzed, which I hadn't really thought about, um, but when I read your treatment of it, it occurred to me that it was significant, is that soccer and hockey are low-scoring games, whereas basketball is a high-scoring game. How does the volume of scoring affect the difficulty of developing an accurate computer model? One of the basic things you do if you're trying to predict matches is look at, say, the scoreline. And obviously, if you have a high-scoring game, that gives you a lot more information. Because if you have two teams that are as different in ability, if there's a lot of scoring potential, there's a lot more opportunities for that difference in quality to be realized. Um, the problem with something like soccer or hockey, where you have very few goals during a game, is that gives you a lot less data to play with. Um, you know, if you have a soccer match that ends 1-0, that might not actually tell you a lot about the true quality of the two teams. Um, so in terms of developing models, a lot of people have had to find other ways. So look at things like shots on target or other proxies that might tell you something useful about the quality of the team that's not actually reflected in the overall result. Yeah, it's basically the more data you have, the easier it is to come up with uh, reasonable analyses. Exactly. And I think that's one of the reasons as well that certain sports like baseball, for instance, has a much longer history of statistics and prediction than something like soccer. Yeah, and also, I don't know whether or not it's possible in soccer because I'm not that familiar with it. <clears throat> but I remember very early on in baseball um, and possibly very early on in computer programming, I was teaching computer programming courses back in the 60s, and there were actually you know, simple simulation programs written based on batting averages, the pitchers, et cetera, that you could actually play a number of, you know, the equivalent of fantasy games in baseball. And this was as, you know, this was as far back as the 60s. So this has been going on for some time. I, I agree. There's a really long history in uh, baseball. I think one of the reasons as well is you can have those individual matchups. You know, if you've got the batter and the pitcher, that's essentially a one-on-one. Um, one of the reasons that team sports become more difficult is because you might have a player that doesn't appear to do much that's measurable. So he might not make many tackles or score many goals, but actually is very important to the team. And these things are much harder to quantify in a computer model. Yeah, it's very intriguing. Um, you know, at the start of this interview, you discussed the fact that mathematics and gambling were interrelated. But it seems that recently, most of the computer models developed for analyzing sports are by computer scientists, statisticians, and economists, people who are interested in the applications of mathematics rather than the development of the field of mathematics. I think it's certainly the case that people with a more applied outlook um, are traditionally the ones who target these kind of games. But it's interesting talking actually to, to some of the people who've been professional gamblers. Um, the backgrounds they have are often quite diverse. In some cases, people have started off in quite theoretical areas. And there's actually one person I interviewed who um, developed a lot of the theory for um, predicting football matches. And actually, you know, he said that was, that was something that at the time seemed like a innocuous side project, but actually really changed his career trajectory. Um, and I think Generally, anyone with a more quantitative outlook on things, whether that's in computer science or, or maths or stats, anyone who's just interested in how games work um, can seemingly end up finding their way into the industry. Um, uh, one of the things that you discuss, and as I said, I first became aware of this when I was reading the Eudaimonic Pie, was the topic of complexity. What is complexity and how does it affect both weapons developments and sports betting? One of the examples I use in the, in the book to in the discussion of complexity um, is the, the AK-47 rifle. So this was um, 
historically something that was often used um, by guerrillas and you know in, in Vietnam it's used a lot by the communists and although it wasn't particularly accurate it had this reputation for rarely breaking and one of the reasons for that um, was that it had very few moving parts and really from mechanical um, objects so you know things like guns and engines even through to um, computer models as soon as you put more moving parts and more interactions into something it makes it a lot harder to predict what might happen um, and one of the examples I use in the book is, is a sport like golf where you have a lot of interactions and processes which often are very difficult to quantify and difficult to understand. Um, and that means that it makes it much harder to predict what might be going on. And I think there can be these analogies drawn between parts of engineering, which are more complex and hence more unreliable, and things in, uh, in prediction, which likewise have more interactions going on, and it's much harder to actually work out what might happen. Um, you know, a relatively recent development, or maybe maybe within the past decade or so, in the gambling community is the idea of in-play betting. What is in-play betting and how is it implemented? In many cases, historically, betting has stopped when the game has, has begun. So, you know, you place your bet beforehand about the team you think is going to win, and then the match starts, and then, you know, you just have to wait and hope. But what's really developed in recent years is the ability to bet during the game. So, if one team's up, the odds will change as the match is going, and then you can either place more bets or, in some cases, um, swap your bet the other way. So, you know, if you back the team that was the outsider and then they're winning, you can almost hedge your bets halfway through the, the match. Um, and in many cases, this requires uh, a lot more computational power, both on the side of the bookmaker and, of course, um, a bit more theory if you're the better and you've got these odds changing rapidly over the course of a game and you need to adjust your strategy to deal with it. Um, do you think it is easier or harder to win against in-play betting than pre-match betting? Generally, it seems that in-play betting, um, the odds are, are less efficient. So as a game is changing, perhaps you know, a goal is scored, people will overreact to news. So the odds will maybe jump quite a lot and they won't be accurate. So if you can spot that, then that's something you can take advantage of. Um, the difference, of course might be that there's less money so for a big nfl game you'd have a huge amount of money placed um before the kickoff but actually once the match starts there might be less money available and you know so you'd have to spot bigger discrepancies in odds to get the same advantage one of the things also that um happens with in-play betting is that there's a uh it's vulnerable to um, uh, to interference on the part of the athletes, the the games getting fixed, and I'm not sure whether or not you're familiar with this. Although you probably are, there was a major scandal a few years ago involving a tennis match with a Russian tennis player. Are you familiar with this? Um, I'm aware that there's been some controversy around tennis. I'm not sure about the specific one. Oh, okay, well, I won't mention the name of the player because, for all I know, he hears the interview and I get sued. Um, but nonetheless, what happened was the uh, <clears throat> the player was playing a 
uh, a player of lesser caliber, one that he would be expected to beat easily. And so what he did was he got down in the match early. The odds in in in-play betting swung and a tremendous amount of money came in uh, because now he was a significant underdog. A tremendous amount of money came in on him at very high odds. And this was being conducted on Betfair. Betfair suspended the bets on the match and there was an investigation. And as a result, um, you know, as a result, they sort of monitor this type of thing much more extensively. You can see it more, I think, in tennis than in other sports because you can see it's much easier to fix something when you only have one individual involved definitely and i think there's um with the rise of more in-depth betting markets certainly um in in other sports like cricket where there's a huge amount of money bets in asia some of these very specific in-match bets have become susceptible potentially um to people to people betting the other way on this um and i think in any of these situations where you have um, a lot of money involved and some of it potentially underground um there is an incentive from some parties to try and take advantage of that. Well, there were two words that came up in the last uh, in, uh, in your last conversation, namely the idea of a markets and b a lot of money. And so we're going to turn some of our attention to what is probably the greatest gambling game of all, markets. Um, when did companies executing strategies for gambling on sports become part of the investment market? And what advantages does this offer a potential investor? This idea is, is really something that's uh, emerged in the last decade or two. Um, historically, you, you've always had people betting on sports, but it's often been very closed syndicates and naturally quite secretive groups. Um, but what's increasingly happening is these firms are opening up to outside investors. Um, so there's a few examples of firms now that are essentially positioning themselves as sports betting hedge funds. Um, and the argument they make is that if you've got a hedge fund that specializes, for instance, in predicting commodities prices, that's not so different from having a fund that specializes in predicting sports results um, in their um, way of way of looking at it, really, kind of sports you could view as another assets class. That's you know where you where you can focus on everything from sort of commodities to stocks. You might actually also um, have people who are experts in sports betting. Uh, and the point that they they've made is that potentially this is a kind of diversification. If you're you, know, if you haven't got a big aversion to betting, then potentially having someone who's an expert in that and then bankrolling them to invest your money might not be a bad idea. Well, one of the things that absolutely fascinated me about your book was that your book goes into uh, an area which is recent developments with which I'm not particularly familiar. And of course, new things always interest you. And so I'm going to spend several questions on the idea of a bot. What is a bot and what is their role in both sports betting and financial markets? A bot is... In essence, uh, just a very simple uh, computer algorithm or something that, that places bets uh, in, in a sports betting context automatically or in a financial market um, automatically trades. Um, in many cases, these aren't very complex. So certainly the, the high-speed trading algorithms in financial markets are sometimes just a few lines of code. So I think there's some of the reputation that these are very complex computer programs. But in many cases, um, you're just looking at a very simple set of rules that they're following. Um, I've got a number of questions on these because, as I said, this is just a fascinating area to me. Could you describe some of the different species of bots currently operating? I found that was fascinating when I was reading your book. Sure. There's a number of 
approaches and advantages that bots can give people. Um, one is to pick up on mispricing. So as I mentioned, in betting markets, sometimes the pipe price will jump incorrectly and the first person to react to that will be the one who can take advantage. So bots, because they can act much, much faster than humans, can potentially jump in quicker and, uh, and carry out those bets. But there's a lot of other roles that they can take as well. One of them is um, to actually place systematic uh, bets and hide. If you've got a lot of money you want to place, they can hide the way that's placed into the market. Because obviously, if you're placing huge bets on something, you might not want your competitors to be aware of what's going on. So having high-speed bots essentially trickling that money into the market can be a way of carrying out large bets without um, actually moving the activity in the overall market. But in turn, you also have bots who um, one, one class of these algorithms is known as sniffer algorithms. So they're trying to find these big bets being placed. And essentially, you know, they'll make lots of little trades. And if they get picked up quickly, then that suggests there might be somebody who's trying to offload um, a lot of money. And then if these algorithms know that that big trade is going to come through, then they can take advantage of it. So it's really a lot of cat and mouse and different strategies all interacting with each other in this marketplace. Fascinating. Um, one of the things, obviously, that we know about bots is that their presence acts to exacerbate flash crashes in different markets. Could you describe some of this? So probably the most notable flash crash um, was, was a few years ago when you had this huge um, drop in the Dow. Um, but there's been another, a lot of evidence. There's a number of these crashes occurring um, where you have a very sudden change in price and then it will reset equally quickly. In many cases, the human eye might not notice. It might be on kind of the order um, of microseconds. And really the way that bots can exacerbate this is because they follow very simple rules and because they're designed to be quick, they haven't got a lot of um, subtlety and, and checks within them. So if a bot is designed to pick up um, on a price that's dropping and trade, trade that very quickly, if the price is going down and all these bots hop on the descending stock, then that can very quickly drive the price down before somebody works out what's going on. Well, uh, there used to be, you know, there used to be a rule in uh, on American stock markets to the effect that um, you couldn't act to exacerbate down moves by uh, there had to be an uptick before you could uh, before you could sell a stock, but uh, or at least sell a stock short, which is you know what what exacerbated moves on the downside. Um, but how do bots interact? And there were some surprising conclusions concerning ecosystems that applied to bots. That was intriguing. Yeah. One of the things I think is really surprising is how, as I mentioned, these bots are incredibly simple. You know, they don't follow very complicated sets of rules. In many cases, they're designed just to do one thing very, very quickly. And a lot of the interesting theory from ecology, this is uh, many years ago, back in the 70s now, um, looked at these very simple uh, rules that you could get. So in an ecosystem, if you have something reproducing, um, and one of the, the findings they had that was very surprising was simple rules and simple kind of um, uh, ecological behavior could actually generate very complex dynamics. So this was an aspect of chaos theory where you had essentially a one-line equation generating these kind of dynamics and interactions that were far more complicated than anyone had believed. And I think there's an um, analogy really in what's going on with markets, that in many cases you can have a lot of bots, each of which is following very, very simple instructions. But when you put them together, 
the effects can be incredibly difficult to predict. I think the uh, the $64,000 question here is, do the presence of bots make markets more efficient or more risky or both? I think to some extent it's both. Um, they certainly can make markets more efficient because if there are um, trades that need to be made, they can enable that to be conducted faster. And in, in some situations where humans might not be able to react on the same timescales, but it also means that when things do get carried away um, and when these bots don't have a fail safe, um, potentially the, the changes can be much more dramatic and faster um, than they might have otherwise happened in the past. And by the time that the problem has been noticed, um, it could have actually um, got you know, quite, quite bad in that very short space of time. I think many of us have read that uh, uh, computer programs such as IBM's Deep Blue and Watson uh, have gotten to the point where they're more sophisticated and better able to play some of the classic open board games such as chess and more recently Go, but they've yet to master poker. And one of the aspects of poker that makes poker considerably different from all the other open board games is that there's this uh, component of bluffing. Why is bluffing important? Bluffing's long been used by gamblers as a technique for essentially hiding uh, how good your hand is. If you are betting and you always bet high when you have a good hand and bet low when you have a bad hand, that's giving your opponent a lot of information about your strategy. And bluffing is a way of overruling this. Sometimes you'll, you'll bet high with a bad hand and that will cover up and make it very difficult for your opponent to decide what hand you're holding. And one of the things that's interesting actually is as the mathematical theory of games like poker developed, it showed that bluffing isn't just a human trick. Actually, in many cases, it's the optimal thing to do, that if you have a bad hand, it is actually optimal to occasionally bluff on it to make it um, difficult for your opponent to work out um, what you might actually be doing. Um, and that brings us to the concept of a Nash equilibrium. What is a Nash equilibrium and what are some examples of it? A Nash equilibrium, um, if you have a game with multiple players, is essentially a set of strategies where no one player has something to gain by changing their strategy alone. Uh, a really famous example um, of a Nash equilibrium um, was developed by John Nash, um, known as the prisoner's dilemma. So this is a situation where you have two prisoners um, who've been caught and each of them are put in separate cells and they uh, are each given an ultimatum. You know, you can either keep quiet um, and if both, play if both of the prisoners keep quiet, then they'll get a fairly short sentence. Um, they can both uh, essentially blame the other person. And if one person keeps quiet and the other one blames, um, the person who blamed them will get off and the person who kept quiet um, will have a long sentence. Or if they both blame each other, then they'll both get a longer sentence. Um, so if you look at the picture as a whole, obviously the best thing to do is to keep quiet because then they'll both get a very short sentence and they'll both get let off. But from an individual point of view, if the other guy blames you, you don't want to keep quiet because then he'll walk and you'll get a sentence. Um, but likewise, if the other guy keeps quiet, you're going to want to blame him because that means that you get out. So from the individual level, you end up in a situation where both people will try and blame each other, which will lead to a worse overall outcome um, just because they're using this kind of Nash strategy approach of trying to maximize their individual situation. So that was really one of John Nash's main findings that you can have these games where if you look at the, the overall picture, there might seem like something that's more sensible to do. But at the individual rational level, actually, the choice uh, will lead you in a different direction. 
Well, one of the things that uh, uh, comes up in this area is that there are different ways of analyzing games than the more classical one. And one that I was unfamiliar with was the idea of regret minimization. What is it and how does it contrast with traditional expectation maximizing strategies? One of the big focuses for um, these algorithms in poker that are trying to learn the game and trying to find these optimal strategies, so these Nash equilibrium strategies, is um, really they have to learn how to play the game uh, efficiently. And poker is obviously a very complicated game. And a lot of economic thinking traditionally has focused on what's known as expectation maximizing. So you look forwards into the future and say, what decisions will maximize my game? Um, But really, there's a lot of evidence that humans tend to learn in a more retrospective way. So having made a set of decisions you'll look back and say, well, what would have happened if I'd done something differently? And if you're trying to minimize regret as you play the game, you might look back and evaluate your decisions and say, well, did that go well? What what might I change next time around? And actually, there's a number of psychological studies looked at people that um, don't have functioning parts of the brain that allow them to experience regret. And in many cases, they're much worse uh, at playing games of chance because it seems that humans learn to play games of chance by um, capitalizing on this regret minimization approach to, to look back and ask what if. And if you don't have that present either in a human or in a, a computer program, it's much, much harder to learn how to play these games properly. That's extremely intriguing. And when you mentioned that, I was uh, I was uh, contrasting it or at least comparing it with an analysis of Prisoner's Dilemma that I saw a number of years ago. I'm not sure you're familiar with this because this might be, you know, part of the ancient landscape. But back around the late 80s and early 90s, they used to have computer tournaments in which the players would play uh, or, you know, the computer programmers would devise different strategies for uh, different strategies for winning at prisoner's dilemma. And they go head on head with each other and, you'd, uh, you know, you'd emerge with a victor. And one especially successful strategy was something called tit for tat which uh, essentially what it did is it started out uh, doing something. And then what it did is that it rewarded the play. It rewarded the opponent. If he cooperated, <clears throat> penalized him. If he, uh, if he didn't, of course you were playing this game over and over again. And in a certain extent that, um, that is a type of regret minimization, although it's regret minimization over, uh, by looking at what has been done in the past and modifying your behavior in the future. Exactly. And I think that was an early example of these repeated games where people, or computers in this case, will change their decisions based on what they've previously experienced. And really, the, the modern regret minimization algorithms are just a, a much more um, advanced version of that kind of logic that they play these bots play against each other um, you know, billions of times and over the course of doing that, look back on their choices and work out whether that was optimal or whether there was something else um, that they would have done. And by it, being able to analyze almost that like counterfactual, that what if, uh, enables them to learn to play these games incredibly effectively. Um 
Like you, I have a background in mathematics, although my background in mathematics is in an area called functional analysis. And one of the things that happens in functional analysis is that there are things called strong, weak, and ultra-weak topologies. And so I was sort of surprised that as I'm reading your book, I see that there are strong, weak, and ultra-weak solutions to a game. Could you explain what these are? Sure. There's three real ways of... um categorizing solutions to a game. So if you say a game is solved, what do you actually mean by that? And the strongest version of this, the strong solution, is where even if you come into the game halfway through, even if errors have been made, no matter what the situation in front of you, you know what the strategy is from that point onwards to give you the optimal result. Um, So that really, for for games like Tic-Tac-Toe, for instance, most people, even if they come to a board halfway through, will work out what the best way of proceeding is. In many cases, that's not possible computationally. So the next type of solution is what's known as a weak solution, where if two player, two perfect players sat down right from the start of the game and played optimally, you know what their strategies should be and how the game would end. So a few years ago, checkers were solved in this way, um, for example. So it's known from start to finish um, what strategy should be played, but it's not known if someone started halfway through what they should necessarily do. The final type of solution is what's known as an ultra-weak solution. So this is something where the final outcome of the game is known, but not necessarily the strategy to get you to that point. Um, So an example of this is games like Connect 4, where it's actually the structure of the game. um, In just a few logical steps, you can work out that the second player, so the person who starts second, can never win the game. Um, You don't necessarily know what the strategy is with that logic, but just by a, a sort of basic... Uh, analysis of the game setup, um, you know what the final outcome will be. So that's the ultra-weak uh, end of the stick. Well, now I know my why my wife always wants me to go first and connect four. <laughs> um, how do bots adapt to the habits of particular opponents? What happens when they are prevented from doing so? A lot of traditional poker theory is focused on this idea of Nash equilibrium. So this is the, the strategy if you're facing a perfect opponent. But, of course, in many cases, bots aren't facing these perfect theoretical opponents. They're facing humans who make errors. So, actually, if you play this equilibrium strategy, you're being quite defensive because you're assuming your, your opponent's incredibly good. And what you might want to do is deviate from that and take advantage. So, it's been found, for instance, that humans in particular um, are very susceptible to aggressive tactics in poker. So, bots, if they're playing in a perfect opponent, wouldn't necessarily play that way, but... There's a lot of evidence that humans um, are generally pushed into making mistakes if you play more aggressively against them. So that's really kind of this exploitative um, type of play that these bots can do. But in many cases, um, certainly casinos, you're not allowed to have games that adapt to the player who's playing them. So there's these poker um, machines that are coming into Vegas now, um, but in law, they aren't allowed to adapt their style depending on who's playing. They have to play consistently. Um, so this means that actually the um, the people who make them have to tweak them to really kind of be defensive against the strongest possible players because they know that they can't tweak their strategy to make up money on the weaker ones. 
Um, I know that there was a, uh, when I was reading this, I was thinking of the game of backgammon because there was a period in my life when I was between uh, teaching jobs in mathematics and I had to support myself. And there was a backgammon club that opened in Los Angeles. And so I started playing that. And one of the things that I realized is that Against weaker players, what you wanted to do was you wanted to make moves that would complicate the situation because even though they may not be the optimal move, the uh, a player was more likely, an, a weak opponent was more likely to react badly to a complicated situation than a simple one. Exactly, and when the um, analysis of checkers actually um, a few years ago was being done, the software for that adopted a similar strategy. When they were playing humans, they realized that you didn't necessarily want to do the optimal thing. If you led it into a more complex situation, then that would muddy the waters for the human and actually give you advantage in the long term. Yeah. Um, How good are the best poker bots compared with the best human players, do you think? It's very hard to say. Uh, And a number of the people I interviewed had quite differing opinions on this. Um, So certain forms of the game, um, so heads up poker, so two player poker where there's uh, a limit um, on your stake has been solved now. So it's known that um, against the perfect opponent, this bot wouldn't lose in the long run. Um, but games like No Limits, um, Texas Hold'em, so these games that are commonly played at tournaments, um, in some cases you've got groups who think that their bots are probably better than the best humans. And certainly in online poker, um, and some of these these bots that are appearing appear to be very strong indeed. But because you have this element of randomness uh, in the game, it's not like chess where you can almost you know, lay out and analyze at the same time. You've got to account for the fact that the deal of the cards might be random and you might have to play multiple times to actually get uh, a conclusive result. Um, but I do think if we're not at the transition yet, um, we're definitely very close to it. And I think the best bots out there yeah, potentially there's only a handful of humans who are going to be able to beat them at the moment. Um, I think that's one of the things that sort of worries me because when I was when I was reading your book, I mean, uh, there are things about your book which I found absolutely fascinating, but things which I found really, really worrisome. And one of the things that worried me was that at some stage, aren't we placing all our reliance in the uh, uh, the ability of these bots, and we're sort of divorcing human beings from the uh, picture. There was a wonderful science fiction story I read that was probably written in the 1950s about two uh, two warring uh, two warring armies that were being both were being run by uh, by essentially the equivalent of bots. Remember, this is a 1950s story. And one side was definitely behind, and all it could see was this bleak future of gradually losing and losing and losing. And so what happened is that they got somebody in who was just basically crazy, started doing things randomly, and turned the tables. And you wonder whether or not a scenario like this will ever be possible. It will be, I think, very interesting to see how it develops. Um, certainly a lot of the theory, um, from, a, from a game theory point of view, has focused on these perfect players. So from, from checkers and to poker to a large extent, it's assuming that you're facing these perfect opponents. But I think what happens uh, in, in many interesting examples where these bots are kind of having to deviate from these strategies, they're much more of having to read what the other person's doing. I think although it means that potentially you're going to get these games where humans 
aren't able to take on the best machines. Um, I think we are learning a lot from the development of these bots and development of the learning algorithms that are generating them. As I mentioned earlier, bluffing was one of the early mathematical proofs from poker that bluffing was this necessity. What's really interesting, um, talking to people developing these really good poker bots, is in many cases, these bots are coming up with other similarly human strategies. So things that actually, when you're playing them, feel very human. It feels like the bot is is messing with you and, you know, manipulating you. <laughs> and um, if you read interviews about some of these best bots, people talk about them like a human. And I think it's really challenging where we draw the line of what's human behavior and what's just the mathematical optimal strategy. And although potentially it's going to take over some games, I think we're learning a lot more about how we make decisions and what drives um, our way of thinking about games. I think that's a very, very good way to look at it because, as I said, I uh, I was worried when I see these things as uh, the computers taking over the financial markets, but there's so much that can be learned for application to the world outside gambling, the way we think, the way we react, the way we make decisions that ultimately – um, even though when you look at a particular development, you may see that there's a path by which it produces an undesirable result. I'm just generally in favor of acquiring more knowledge. It's just like when, you know, when they manufactured the first artificial organisms. Yes, there were these scenarios where the viruses came in and uh, took over the world. But in reality, uh, we've gained so much from genetic, you know, from genetic modification, genetically modified organisms, that even though there were fears originally, those fears have not come to pass and we've benefited from them. And I think the situation might be the same here. I think that's a good point. Uh, and in many cases, life is full of these incomplete information games. You have something like poker where you can't see the full picture, but if you're negotiating or bargaining, you're, you're in exactly the same situation. I think Gambling and betting is a really good controlled environment to test out the sorts of ideas that we actually face in daily life. Yeah. And which, you know, they're not just individuals, but also uh, also the way that uh, societies react. I, I can see that at some stage of the game that the ideas that we've uh, come up with for what are essentially conflict situations will be modified to look at conflicts in groups, conflict resolutions, things like this. I think there's just a lot of possibilities for this. And even though I sometimes, like, for instance, I think of the problems with the flash crash of 2010 and uh, the problem with the uh, long-term capital management that occurred in the 1990s, I think that our society is sufficient robust that it will get by the problems yes i hope so i mean i think it's gonna be some, <laughs> i think it's gonna be some very interesting developments and i think as well it- more for you than me because you're a lot younger <laughs> than i am <laughs> anyway adam this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation and i just once again i'd like to recommend your book to our readers because it's a fascinating book it's called the perfect bet how Science and Mathematics Are Taking the Luck Out of Gambling, and we've been talking to Adam Kucharski about it. Adam, do you have any plans for writing or whatever you have plans on in the near future? Um, I think at the moment I'm, I'm writing a few more articles uh, around the book um, over the next few months, but focusing on my, my day job is actually on uh, not predicting sports but predicting um, epidemics. So that's my kind of main area of interest at the moment. So a lot of the ideas about probability and risk uh, applying that to outbreak situations. 
And by an amazing coincidence, I'm discussing uh, I'm discussing the systems of differential equations that model the spread of economics in a class I'm teaching at the moment. So it just goes to show that there's a lot of uh, carryover between all these things. Ah, it's fascinating. Yes. Yeah. Um, Adam, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Um, so I've, I've got a website. Um, if you just Google Adam Kucharski, that will flash up. Um, so, yeah, if people... Uh, want to get in touch or you know if you get hold of the book and I'm on Twitter as well so um, lots of opportunities and it'd be good to hear what people think of it Um, Adam thanks very much for the interview and best of luck in the future thank you you.